0: I was thinking this week uh, as I was preparing, you know, here we are in the Sermon on the Mount and, you know, this is the big speech, the big message that Jesus gave to his disciples. This is the one that's the most famous and how, how arrogant does it seem to be able to teach on something that Jesus said so perfectly? Right. It didn't take him very long to deliver this. It's three chapters long, uh, five, six, and seven. Something that he said so perfectly, um, so succinctly to his disciples, and to get up and teach on it seems kind of arrogant. When I was looking at it this week, I'm like, man, what could I say that you know his disciples wouldn't have understood? I mean, yes, it, it you know is expounded on more for the believers now uh, in the New Testament church, but. Um, I was just very humbled as I was putting this together this week and, you know, hopefully what, you know, I'm able to bring to this and, you know, shed some light on the things that Jesus says, you know, may may he be the one that speaks through me in spite of me uh, at times. So uh, that's my prayer this morning as we continue in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, in Psalms 145, David is singing a song of praise to the Lord. And this is what he writes, 145 verses 8 and 9. He says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Our God is a good father. But a lot of people have serious doubts about that, either because of things that have happened to them personally or things that they're witnessing in the world presently, um, like the you know, lady that we talked about last week. They come to the conclusion that either God doesn't exist or that God is nowhere. He's nowhere to be found. He's just an absentee landlord because of the things that they encounter. Uh, At the end of World War II, a peace treaty was signed, and when the peace treaty was signed and the war was over, everybody was celebrating, there was lots of joy, people were excited, but it was going to take months, sorry, it was going to take hours, maybe even days, to get that news to the front lines where the people were still engaged in battle, and that was the case on one battlefield where they were still engaged in the fight, and a mortar shell fell on a group of American GIs. And one of them looked down at his, um, at his wounds, just horrified because he knew that he wasn't going to make it. And his final words were, isn't that just like God? And at times when we encounter tragedy, events like this lead people to wonder about God's goodness. If he even exists or is he even good? Good. And sometimes when we walk through times of tragedy, even leads believers to that question is God really good? Back in the 1940s, there was a dynamic young preacher by the name of Charles Templeton. And he was a contemporary of Billy Graham. They actually spoke together. They went to revivals together and spoke. And uh, he was very powerful in ministry. He spoke in front of 70,000 people at Soldier Field. Uh, he spoke in front of a sold-out Rose Bowl. And uh, even spoke at um, the Radio City Music Hall. But in 1958, Charles Templeton walked away from the faith. He became an agnostic, and he went into the media business, climbed his way all the way up, became the head of the BBC, and that was his career. At one point in time, he was used mightily by the Lord, influencing thousands of people for the Lord, but at the end, he ended up denying his faith, and he said this. He said, I looked at the world, and it doesn't seem to me that it bespoke a God that could be described as Father. It seems to be a universe indifferent to man and to all its creatures. When we were at St. Jude and Levi was in the intensive care unit in ICU, there was a nurse in the ICU who had been working in ICU for 40 years. I think she started out in burn unit, but she had worked in the ICU for a really, really long time, over 30 years. And normally what happens when nurses serve in places like that because they are so stressful, because they take a toll on you emotionally, is they will rotate them out. To a different part of the hospital That's a little less stressful But she had actually worked in ICU for that long And if you've been around Alicia for very long um, It's not It doesn't take too much time before she brings up God And she was talking with this nurse And she brought up the topic of God And this nurse was very quick to snap back I don't believe in God With the things that I've seen With the things that I've encountered in my career I can't believe that there is an all-loving God She had grown really hard And really cynical Uh, understandable, I guess, if you don't have a full grasp of the character and the nature of our Father and what sin has done to the human race, how it's totally corrupted the human race, how it's totally corrupted nature. Is God really good? Uh, Charles Templeton and this nurse from St. Jude, um, because of the things that they had experienced, they could not reconcile what they had observed with what the Word declares, that he is good. John Stuart Mill said, if God is able to prevent evil and he doesn't, then he's not good. And if he can't prevent evil, then he's not all-powerful. So he's either all-powerful and not good, or he is all-good and he can't be all-powerful. That was his conclusion. These are the questions that really haunt humanity. And what answers can we give to people when they're walking through trial, when they're walking through difficulty? And what can we preach to ourselves when we walk through times of difficulty and tragedy? If we ever doubt the character of God, all we have to do is look at Jesus. If we doubt the character and the nature of God, all we have to do is look at Jesus. Um, Hebrews 1, three says that he is the exact imprint, the exact representation of the Father. He is the exact imprint of his nature. And Jesus directly addresses these problems of evil and pain and suffering during his time here. He taught the disciples when we went through the, you know, the Lord's Prayer Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's a very real thing that we're up against in this world. And he also told them, in this world, you're going to have tribulation. You're going to have trials. You're going to inc- you know, encounter this stuff in your life. It's going to be difficult. So what do we do when God doesn't remove temptation and he doesn't obliterate evil or doesn't take those things out? People have a real problem with that. And they say, if there's a God, then why is this happening? why is this happening? Why is this in my life? Why am I dealing with this? Why did I have to walk through that? And they ask, if there is a God, why? Uh, I did a sermon a few months ago on this very topic, but very simply, there's two reasons why God allows evil to exist in the world. First, God created us in his image. says that we are created in his image. God said, let us create man in our image, and by that He was speaking of character qualities. Now, this doesn't mean that we're all little gods, okay, as some false teachers claim. We are are not part of the divine. We have the divine living inside of us, takes up residence inside of us um, when we surrender our lives to him. But being created in the image of God means that we have been given free will. Uh, God is sovereign. He's sovereign over everything. He, you know, is the architect that constructs circumstances and world events to bring about his purposes, and he is so good that he can even use the evil things of the world, the things that we walk through, the brokenness, for our own benefit. That's how good he is. And what he did is he gave us sovereignty over our own lives. We can make decisions in our own lives. We can surrender our lives to him. We can chase relationship with the Lord and grow in that, submit ourselves to his rule, or we can reject him. We can make the decision to reject him, to go our own way and live in rebellion to the king. But just because people deny that he's the king doesn't make him even any less king. You may have not like the fact that Trump was president. You may not like the fact that Biden's president, but that doesn't mean that they're not the president, okay? You can deny it all you want, but it doesn't change the truth. So he gave us some sovereignty to make decisions on our own. He didn't make us mindless clones. Second, not only did he give us uh, his image, but he also made us for a purpose, Um, and that purpose is intimacy. Um, He created us for relationship. He wants relationship with you, but love requires a choice. Right? He didn't make us mindless clothes. He's not going to force his love on anyone. Okay? It says that I stand at the door and knock. Not if you don't answer the door, I'm going to kick it in. I stand at the door and knock. So we can either embrace that purpose right, and carry out God's will for our lives, or we can reject his offer of love and forgiveness and forge our own path. One way leads to life. Relationship leads to life. The other way leads to death and destruction. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. Entering through the narrow gate. Uh, Most people choose their own way. They choose the path that leads to death, that leads to destruction. And then they point their finger at God and say, it's your fault. You're not a good father. But they are asking the wrong questions. And they're seeking the wrong things. And they're knocking on the wrong doors. Which leads us to our passage of scripture today. Matthew 7 So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Last week, we talked about not passing judgment on other people. Uh, Judge not, lest you be judged, right? Uh, We can judge for two things within the church. We can uh, judge for identification. Um, Is the message that's coming out of his mouth, does it match up with Scripture? Does it align? Is it accurate? So we can judge for that. We can also judge for uh, restoration. If you see somebody, a brother or sister in the church that has a lifestyle or something in their life that doesn't match up with scripture, we can approach them about it. But you'd better be sure that you've done some inspection on your own life, that you have dealt with those logs in your own eye before you walk over to a brother or sister and try to help them out with their speck right? Don't approach someone and point out their dirty feet if you're not willing to bow down and wash those feet, right? You come alongside them for the purpose of restoration, not condemnation. So those are the things that we are uh, to actually judge for, not outside the church. It's not going to cooperate. We need to be careful because we don't have all the facts. Only God can judge people's motives, only He can judge their intentions. He knows what they're thinking. Uh, and because we have a full-time job just trying to keep our stuff straight, um, then we need to default to the one who does have all the answers. So we judge for identification and restoration. We don't condemn people. We need to be very careful when we approach them, make sure we've taken care of the sin in our own lives, um, and because we don't have all the facts. These verses that we're going through today verses 7 through 11 serve as a bridge If you will between a negative teaching on judgment and a positive teaching on how to love others um, What we call the golden rule uh, Once we get rid of our self-righteous judging behavior Then we can love people the way that we're supposed to last week We talked about what we're not supposed to do this week. We're going to talk about what we should do uh, And it begins with asking and seeking and knocking first. We need to ask for wisdom uh, We asked wisdom from God for all of the things that we go through in life. Um, And we also seek his will that we can continually practice that in our life. So it's asking, it's seeking, and it's knocking. It's doing that thing continually. Uh, Last week, we ended off by talking about dogs and pigs, right? Um, We need wisdom. We need to ask for wisdom so that we can discern who are the dogs, who are the pigs, and who are the people that are truly open to hearing the gospel. Because if we share our pearls, if we share our truths of the kingdom with people that aren't open to it, then they're just going to trample that. They're just going to attack you. And so we need discernment for that. We need wisdom um, in how to share the gospel. We also need wisdom in how to follow the Lord and carry out his will for our life. James 1.5 said, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. We need discernment. God wants to give it to you but you also need to ask for it. Our culture today is changing so radically. There are things that we encounter now that we never could have dreamed that we were gonna to have to encounter, right? Things we didn't ever think we were gonna to have to deal with now we are facing. And so the Bible doesn't address every single one of those issues but we need wisdom so that we can make right judgments. We need times of prayer. We need times in the word. We need times of sound biblical teaching for the spirit to encourage us and guide us and lead us. The Bible does give us just enough truth to be Responsible, but enough mystery to keep us dependable. And that's something that we need to ask for his wisdom continually on an ongoing basis as the world continues to change, as we continue to face things that we haven't seen before. Jesus is making some promises to his disciples. Um, I want to say this is just kind of a side note. You guys know I like to talk about the chosen, I love the show. But not everything that happens in the show is actually in the Bible. Okay, we need to use discernment when you're watching it because they're filling gaps. They're you know telling a story to try to put flesh on these people, and they tell a great story. But just know that not everything that they put in there is in the Bible. And for instance, um, what they do with Matthew. You know, Matthew is a fantastic character, um, it, but the way that they portray him is that you know he dropped out of Torah school when he was young, and he went into you know math school so that he could use his tools. You know, and he ends up using that to be I'm a tax collector, but that's not a real accurate representation of Matthew because his gospel has more Old Testament scripture in it than the other three gospels probably all put together. So Matthew knew his scripture. He knew what he was talking about. So, um, And then at the end of season two, uh, they are actually, Jesus is getting ready to do his sermon on the mount, if you've seen it. He's walking in. There's thousands of people there. But his disciples had gone out into the city with all kinds of flyers. And they were you know advertising for Jesus' big message, trying to get people out there. And then he stands up to address these thousands of people. Now, in chapter five, it did tell us that people were coming from all over the place to hear Jesus speak. But when he saw the crowds, it says that he took his disciples up the hill and he spoke to them. Now, the other people got to listen in on what he was saying, but his message, his encouragement, his promises were for the people that were following him closely, if that makes sense. So just use some discernment when you're watching the show. Um, Jesus is making some promises to these guys. If you ask, if you seek, if you knock, God's going to answer you. Everyone who asks receives. But there are some caveats to these promises. The first is that you have to be a citizen of the kingdom. First, you have to be a citizen of the kingdom. Um, You have to be of the household of faith, as Paul puts it. You can't make requests of the father if you're not his child. Um, My kids can approach me at any time, ask me anything they want. Now, you may have seen at the end, I've talked to some of you at the service, and my daughter, Brianna, comes up to me, and she just stands there. And I know exactly what she wants. Every Sunday, she wants to ask, where are we going to lunch? I'm like, and so I don't even let her ask anymore. Is like, honey, I'm going to feed you. Don't worry. I'm talking. She can ask me anything. But she's got to be my kid. If somebody else's kid comes up to me and says, what are we having for lunch? I'd be like, go ask your parent. Not my kid. Don't ask me what you're having for lunch. We have to be his child. Jesus always spoke of unbelievers. This is interesting. He always spoke of unbelievers in the third person. It's like he spoke about unbelievers as if they weren't even there, even though they were there listening to him. So you have to be a child of God to lay hold of those promises. Second, we have to be living in obedience. Our lives need to be submitted to him if we're going to ask things from him and expect to receive. 1 John 3.19 says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive for him because we keep his commandments and do what he pleases. So we need to be a child of God. We need to be a citizen of the kingdom. We also need to be obedient to him. Our lives need to be submitted to him. Third, we have to ask with the right motives. You know, why are we asking this of God? Are we praying for our will to be done or are we asking for his will to be done? We talked about that when we went through the Lord's Prayer. Whose will are we praying for? James 4.3 says, You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Some of the things we ask for, we ask wrongly because we really are just asking for ourselves. We're not, we don't have an outward, you know, um, focus on Him and on other people. We're just looking to spend it on ourselves. And God says, that's not the best thing for you. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. And if it doesn't come to you, then God says, that's not good for you. Maybe good for somebody else, not for you. We can lay hold of these promises if we are of the family of faith, if we're living in obedience, if we're truly seeking his will for our lives and asking with the right motives. God will always deliver on his end. Uh, We're never going to deplete his divine resources. It's not going to happen. But we have the responsibility to ask and to seek and to knock. Asking, asking in prayer, talking to the Lord, seeking, reading your Bible, You know, listening to godly teaching, that's seeking him. And then knocking. We need to do those other two things, asking and seeking. We need to do them consistently and persistently. We need to do them over and over again. Now, these verses move towards the golden rule. Treat other people the way that you want to be treated. Jesus begins to describe the character of God. And again, he calls him father because that's the type of relationship the Lord wants to have with you and I. He wants to be a father to us. He wants to have an intimate relationship with you. One of my favorite days of the year is Christmas. Um, I love Christmas. Uh, it's a fun day. And when our kids were younger, I have to be honest, it was a very stressful day. Because we would wake up, when the kids are little, they end up getting lots of little things, okay? And then it would look like, you know, a Christmas wrapping bomb went off in our house. There would be trash everywhere. And then what we would do, they barely had time to play with their stuff. And then we would load everybody up and we would go to one side of the family's house, right? And I remember one year, We filled the van so much I had to drive home and dump off all that stuff before we could go over to the other side of the family and get more stuff. It was very exhausting by the end of the day. We were tired. They were tired. But I tell you, as they've gotten older, it's becoming a lot more enjoyable because they can more fully appreciate the gifts that we're giving. They also use it for more than a couple days, which is nice, and it makes me happy as a dad. To experience that, to experience the giving. Uh, from time to time, we'll get out um, old home movies, right? We'll get out the tapes. Uh, we even have some VHSs. We'll drag those out, and we'll hook it up to the TV before too long, where those aren't even going to hook up to the DV- TV. But it gets a little bit easier when you get into the digital age, and we've got it all on the computer. And we'll watch what we call Ewing TV, and we get it out, and we start watching, and most of the things that you record there's a lot of Christmases on there, Christmases, birthdays, and vacations, right so most of the stuff that you record and we'll go through these, and the kids can kind of relive those moments of what they got and the you know the emotions that were attached to that and you know over time, we forget the things that we're given, but we remember you know the feelings and the emotions that are attached to that. I can't remember anything I got from Christmas when I was a kid. I just can't. But I remember that they were good days, the feelings that were, and it was because there was giving involved. There were gifts from my father and my mother. But over time, we've, we tend to forget those things. Um, what Jesus said was true, that it's more blessed to give than to receive. That's true. Um, as earthly dads, we love giving to our kids. We love providing for them. Uh, it's funny, though, because on Father's Day, we would actually prefer that they not really do too much for us, right? We don't want you to spend too, don't go out of your way, don't spend too much money, especially when we're younger because it's my money anyway. Um, so don't spend too much of it. <laughs> it's kind of better now, they have jobs now, but um, you know, you don't, it's not as important for your kids to give gifts to you. We enjoy giving gifts to them, um, and all I really want to do is just spend time with them. That's really what I want, relationships, spending time, which is getting more difficult the older they get, and the more they want to be gone from the house. But I think a lot of dads can relate to that, that the joy is in the giving and them experiencing that. And Jesus tells his disciples, he says, listen, which of you dads, which of you dads, if your kid asks for a loaf of bread, who would give them a rock? And if your, if your kid asks for a fish, who would give them a serpent? None of you would do that. Now it's interesting because when we touched on uh, Jesus in the wilderness being tempted by Satan, a lot of the rocks in that region would have looked a lot like a loaf of bread. You know, kind of round, smooth rocks that are sitting there. And as I was thinking about that, it's one thing to be hungry, you know. But when you're hungry, you know, you see in the movies or in the cartoons when we were growing up, when somebody became hungry, they start to, you know, become they start to see things that they aren't really there. You know, um, illusions, right? And those things would have looked. Like loaves of bread, that would have made the temptation, the temptation, all that much more difficult. Uh, It's not like he asked him to turn a tree into a loaf of bread. There were these rocks that were sitting there already looked like loaves of bread. It would have been easy. He was tired. He was hungry. That's the reason why you're not supposed to go to the grocery store when you're hungry. You start throwing stuff in your cart because it all looks good. That temptation would have been real. now, I don't, has anybody tried snake? There's probably somebody in here that's tried snake. No, you've tried snake? Okay. My mom's eating snake. Yeah, you've been over to Asia. That's gross. Here's some pictures of snake. Put that up there. So here's some pictures of snake. I've watched enough survival shows to, to watch guys cook snake and the interesting thing is, it can actually look a lot like fish if you, if you, you know, cut it the right way. I mean, that over on the right, it looks like it has bones in it. It could be looking like fish. But just like pigs, snakes were unclean. You weren't supposed to eat them. And I've heard this taught before, that a father wouldn't give something obviously dangerous to their kid. You wouldn't give him a rock, and you wouldn't give him a poison snake to play with. And that is true. But a father also wouldn't deceive his child. He wouldn't give him something that looked like it was good, but was actually, in reality, something very dangerous, something very bad for them. Does that make sense? It's not natural for a father to ignore the physical needs of their children, how much more their spiritual needs as well. Fathers, good fathers, provide for their children physically and spiritually. We take the responsibility of caring for our family very seriously. And Jesus said, if you then, who are evil know how to give good gifts, how much more will your father give you good gifts to those who ask? Speaking of now, you know, when he says you who are evil, he's talking about of our fallen nature, our sinful nature, right? If we are imperfect and selfish, if we know how to give the best to our kids, don't you think your perfect creator God wants to do the same for you, but you need to ask? Uh, I read a post this week, very convicting, that said we treat our God very poorly, You know, if you look at the pagans um, and some of the religions in Asia, they treat their false gods with a lot of dignity, with a lot of respect. They do it very devotedly. And because our God is full of mercy and full of grace, and we talk about that, we have a tendency to take that for granted and not respect him, not have a holy fear of the Lord and treat him very poorly when we have a good heavenly father. I was thinking back in terms of pagan gods, and you look at some of Greek mythology and all the gods. You know, when Paul went to Athens and he walked through, there was, he said there were all these idols, all of these shrines set up to all these different gods, that they had one set up, you know, to the unknown God because they had so many they didn't want to offend. So they had one to the unknown God that they may not have discovered yet. But if you look at that, there are all these, you know, Greek parent gods. They were full of deceit. They were full of trickery. The things they did to their kids were mean. And the way they served their gods, it was really only to earn favor from them, to bribe them, or to appease them so that something bad wouldn't happen. We don't have to do that with our father. We don't have to bribe him to try to get something from him. And we don't have to appease him to, you know, suppress his wrath that something bad will happen to us. Um, if you read your Bible every day this week, God's not going to love you any more than he did before if you didn't if you haven't read your Bible for two months he doesn't love you any less. Our father is a good father he simply loves you he wants the best for you It's been encouraging to me uh, here over the past year uh, to really see parents taking more of an interest in their kids' lives uh, One of the things i guess good things that came out of this pandemic was you know. Parents becoming more interested, more involved in their kids' education. As they started going through the things that their kids were learning in school and realizing, you know what, I don't like that. That's not what I would give my kid. That's not the best for them. Me, as a parent, that's not what I want my kids to learn, this progressive agenda. And they became more involved in that. Um, And I think something like that has been a really positive thing. We're seeing a shift, however slight it might be, of parents towards their kids. And you see that just a little bit in the world of parents who are standing up and fighting for their kids, how much more our Heavenly Father wants to provide and protect us. The greatest human loving relationship is between a parent and a child. And we are merely a representation of our Father in that. We do it very poorly sometimes, but we are a representation on earth of our Father. Um, but our resources are limited, right? Our parental affection, as deep and as sincere as it might be, is limited, but our Heavenly Father has no limits. We'll never deplete His resources. We'll never exhaust His love for us. Um, His love for you is so much deeper than you can possibly imagine. We hear that and it sounds, like, it sounds trite. right? I hear that all the time. God's love for you is so much deeper and wider and bigger than it could ever think. But it's true. If you take the time to kind of just um, meditate on that, it'll encourage you. Um, But unfortunately, a lot of people say, well, if God is really a good father, he would provide for me better materially. If he really loved me, he would make my life more comfortable here on the earth presently. But that's very short-sighted. It's very short-sighted to think that if God loved me, he would provide better for me. Because everything that's happening now is preparing you for eternity. Everything that you're encountering, experiencing, everything that you face right now as a, as a believer is preparing you for eternity. In Hebrews 11, it says that by faith, Abraham left his country and went to the land of promise, the land that God was giving him. But it says that when he got there, he still lived in tents. Now, if I had a promised land, God said, I'm giving you all, I'm giving you 100 acres. This is what I'm giving you. I would go build a house on that land so fast, okay? Abraham was extremely wealthy. He could have built a permanent structure, but it says that he lives in tents because he was looking forward to an eternal city, one whose foundations and designer and builder was the Lord. So even though God had given him all of this, he said, I'm looking forward to an eternal city. I'm just passing through. I don't want to get too connected to the things of this world. Thank you, Lord, that you have taken care of me and you are a good father, but I don't want to get too connected to the things here. There are parents who have provided everything their kids could want materially, but because they did not invest in relationship and discipline and preparing their kids for the future, it ended up in rebellious adults. And conversely, there have been parents who didn't have much. They didn't have much materially, but because they did invest in relationship and discipline and investing and in getting their kids ready for the future, they turned into very well-adjusted, productive adults. Your heavenly father wants to have relationship with you, but you have to want relationship with him too. He's not going to force himself on you. Your heavenly father disciplines you, disciplines all of us through the things that we go through, through trials, through suffering. He disciplines us. And I don't mean like a spiritual spanking, okay? If you want to be a disciple, you need to have discipline. Makes sense, right? You can't have one without the other. If you want to be a disciple, you have to have discipline, And he's preparing you and I for an eternal future. Second Corinthians 4, 17 and 18 tells us, For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. There's a parallel passage to our text today. It's found in uh, Luke. And it says, How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Today in Matthew, it says, how much will your heavenly father give good things, good gifts? In Luke, it says, how much more will he give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Good gifts and the Holy Spirit come from our father says, so every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of light. And he gives you and I the Holy Spirit to empower us to enter into this relationship, to live out his will for our lives, and to walk in this way of life, this uh, lifestyle that he's called us to. Um, also gives us the ability to endure that discipline. So we enter into relationship, we endure the discipline, and instills inside of us a hunger that this world can't satisfy. Instills a hunger for more of his word, for more of him. C.S. Lewis wrote, "If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, then the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. If there's nothing in this world that can totally satisfy me, then I have to conclude that I'm made for someplace else. And that's what his spirit is preparing us for. Okay, last verse for today, verse 12, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Last week I mentioned that judge not lest you be judged is probably one of the most misused verses in the scriptures. The world uses it, um, they misuse it, but this portion of scripture probably one of the most paraphrased verses in all of the Bible. Every parent has said this to their kids, treat others the way that you want to be treated, Right? Interesting because that's what our Heavenly Father is telling his kids. Treat other people the way that you want them to be treated, the golden rule. And Jesus is actually paraphrasing the second commandment, which is to love our neighbor as ourselves. Remember the scribe went to Jesus and said, what is the greatest commandment? God said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Romans thirteen eight tells us that loving your neighbor actually fulfills the law. All the law, all the prophets, Jesus said, love God and love others. That's what it boils down to. He made it real easy. This is completely backwards from the way our flesh thinks. Our flesh thinks, I'll be nice to them when they're nice to me. It's conditional. But what Jesus is saying is that how we treat people shouldn't be dependent on how we expect them to treat us or how we think that they should treat us. It's just be proactively good to others because our father is good to us. Most of the world's religions teach whatever you don't want people to do to you, don't do to them. You don't want people to hurt you, don't, do, don't hurt them. It's kind of a negative thing, right? It's, you need to um, suppress what you want to do to other people because you don't want them to hurt you. It's a negative reinforcement. The Jewish people had all kinds of positive and negative laws. Um, they had 365 negative ones. Don't do this. And they had 248 positive ones. This is what you should do. Positives and negatives. Jesus is taking this negative that the world had kind of espoused. You don't want somebody hurting you, so don't hurt them, and turns it into a positive. This is God's standard. Not just refraining from offending, but proactively being good to others and treating them the way that you would want to be treated. Um, there's an illustration that I read this week. For many years, uh, the basic instrument for music was the harpsichord. Right. That was the basic music instrument. If you hear the harpsichord, if you've watched enough movies, it takes you back to a very specific point in time. Um, kings and queens and royals and their courts and all that kind of stuff. And I always liked the, the sound of the harpsichord, uh, but it's very metallic, right? It's got a different sound to it. It's, it's tone isn't pure, if I can say it that way. But the tone is produced when the strings inside the harpsichord are plucked. Right? They're plucked. But then right around the time of Beethoven, somebody modified the harpsichord. So instead of the strings being plucked, they're being struck. By a hammer and you get a more pure tone. Just that one small thing, instead of a negative negative from a, po- a positive, it made a huge difference. Revolutionized the music world and now that is kind of the standard in music is the piano, that beautiful tone. And what Jesus is doing here is he's taking that idea that people had hurt from so long, using the negative, don't hurt others because you don't want to be hurt, and turning it into a positive. Really, if you look at it, that negative teaching don't hurt others because you don't want to be hurt. It's not love. It's really just self-preservation. That's all it is. And we like to look out for our own self-interest to preserve ourselves. Um, We're very selfish by nature. There's a word for people who are obsessed with themselves. People that are obsessed and wrapped up in themselves, we call them narcissists, right? They're narcissistic. They are not um, caring of the needs and the well-being of others. We actually get that word from the Greek god Narcissus. I found that out this week. There was a Greek mythological god named Narcissus, and apparently he was very handsome. And one day he caught a glimpse of himself in a pool, and he fell in love with himself. And so all he would do is just sit around and stare at his reflection in the pool. He was a narcissist. And we know some people that are uh, very into themselves. They're very wrapped up in themselves. There's a saying that a man wrapped up in himself makes an awfully small package. A very short explanation of human nature in the gospel. You and I sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We, won't, we weren't born good and then sinned and became sinners. We sin because we're sinners. We were born that way. It's hardwired into us. And that sinfulness, that selfishness, that I want to do what I want to do, I am the captain of my fate is hardwired into us, and it's going to destroy us. And God sent his son to save us from ourselves and this sin problem that we have. And he's calling us up to a higher standard of getting your eyes off yourself and onto him and onto others. It's love God and love others. If you are experiencing a season where you are um, struggling with depression or if you're in the dumps, then what you need to do is not look inward. You need to look outward. You're not going to like what you find if you look inward. We need to look outward and upward. We need to love God and love others. We need to start serving people if you're struggling with that. According to Jesus, these are the two greatest commandments. And only he can give us the power to live this out practically at a sustained level. To be able to love God and love other people at a sustained level, it's going to take a power greater and outside of ourselves to help us to do that. And that's what he does when he fills us with the Holy Spirit, when we surrender our lives to him. When you look at the fruits of the Spirit, love is the very first one. The fruits of the Spirit are the evidence of our salvation. If you're saved, there better be some fruit on your life. You all are to be spiritual fruitcakes, okay? You need to have fruit in your life. That's what Jesus says. And love is the very first one. Now, you might say, Nathan, I just don't have much love for people. You know, people annoy me. They bother me. I struggle with it. This is not easy. I don't have a lot of love for other people. So as Jesus followers, as people who are trying to be imitators of Christ, how do we walk out this verse of treating other people the way that we want to be treated? Well, the first key to loving others is abiding. John fifteen ten says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. We will fuller understand the nature and the character of our Father if we abide in Him, and we abide by being in His Word, hearing what He wants to say to us, and through prayer, talking to Him, having intimacy with Him. If I want to have a loving relationship with my wife, then we got to spend some time together, right? Uh, Tuesday night is our date night. We sit, Tuesday nights our date night. We try not to let anything get in the way of that. We set aside a few hours on Tuesday night, and Not go to Walmart, because she tells me that's not romantic. We do other things. We go out to dinner. We try to have a good time. Now, if we went out on Tuesday nights, had a great time, went and ate, went and went to Andy's afterwards, and we had a really fun time, but I didn't talk to her the rest of the week, ignored her calls, came in the house when I got home from work and plopped down on the couch and just ignored her. It doesn't matter how fun of a time we had on Tuesday nights, our marriage is going to be in trouble. But that's what a lot of people do with God. They say, I spend time with God on Sunday mornings between 10 and noon. But the other six days of the week, we have no relationship. We don't read our Bibles. We don't worship him. We don't spend time around other brothers and sisters. And then we wonder why we don't have relationship with him. That's what a lot of Christians do. We say we hang out with him on Sundays, and then we don't engage him the rest of the week. And when we don't do that, it's going to be really difficult for us to have his love inside of you to go pour out into other people because you're empty. You know, um, Mark and Christy named their coffee shop Overflow. And one of the things that you would do in the Jewish culture is if you wanted somebody to stay if you had a friend And you wanted them to stay for a long time What you would do is when you were filling up their cup you would fill it up to overflowing That meant I want you to stay If you didn't want them to stay get a little bit have your drink and get out of here But if you wanted them to stay that you would fill it to overflowing. That means you are a friend You are welcome here. I want you to stay a long time And if we want to have love that overflows out onto other people, we need to be full first You can't give what you don't have that makes sense And that brings us to the second point. The secret to abiding is obeying. Simply doing what the Lord has asked us to do at any given moment. Bible is full of examples of people who wanted to have relationship with the Lord, but they were disobedient to what he had them do. Disobedient, they knew what his will was, but they didn't do it, and it didn't end well. Um, It started off with Adam and Eve. God said, you got everything. Everything. You can eat from any tree in the garden. I have one rule. You had one job. Don't eat from that tree. They knew his will and they broke it and they lost relationship. They were sent out. He no longer walked with them in the cool of the day like he used to. When we're disobedient, we lose relationships and we don't get to abide with him when we're disobedient. The secret of obeying. So secret of abiding is obeying. Secret of obeying is knowing. John 15, Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants for the servant doesn't know what his master's doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from my Father, I've made known to you. You do not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. And these things I command you so that you'll love one another. Right? If you know me, you're going to bear fruit. You're going to be able to love others and abide in me. I have let you know everything that you need to know. Everything that the Father's given me to tell you, I've given it to you. I haven't hidden anything. You've probably heard the, the, you know, you can be familiar with me. You've heard the saying, familiarity breeds contempt, right? You've heard that saying? That's only true with contemptible things. It's not true with our father. The more you get to know him, the more you're going to want to be like him. I'm happy that the kids are having fun in children's <laughs> church, man. <laughs> there was one time we were in church and we heard a gigantic scream from the kids area. I was like, that's awesome. I want the kids. This is the future, you know, of the church is the kids. That's the reason why we give them the word. We don't just have them color you know, pages. We want them to have the word because they're the next ones that are going to be sitting in the pews, so to speak. And if they're enjoying their time at church and they're getting the word, that's all I'm concerned about, you know? I remember one, this is totally off the subject, but I remember one church we went to and we dropped our kids off and the kids' area was tiny, man. It was like a closet. And we kind of like left our kids and we are like, all right, you know, I don't know. It looks like germs are everywhere in here. And we asked Devin, he was young at the time. He was probably like, I don't know, four or five. And we were like, kind of rhetorically, like, what did you learn in church today? And he told us like the whole Bible story that he had learned that day. And we thought, you know what? If he's getting the word and he can remember it, who cares if they're meeting in a closet? I don't care. All I wanted to do is learn the Bible, and that's what they did. And so uh, we have a space bigger than a closet, but I don't care if they're allowed. That's good stuff. Okay, where was I? Knowing him. him. Familiarity doesn't breed contempt with the Father. The more we know him, the more we want to get to know him, the more we want to be like him. Like the saying goes, to know him is to love him. The more you know him, the more you're going to want to obey him, and the more you'll get to abide with him. And we'll have his love inside of us for other people, a supernatural kind of love that the, the world just isn't going to understand, especially when we're proactive about it. It's one thing to love people who are annoying to you. It's another thing to be proactive and treat other people the way you want to be treated because people will look at that and they'll say, why are you doing that? Why are you going out of your way to be nice to people, especially that person, because they're annoying. They're the person in the office that bugs everybody, that keeps talking, that won't go away. That only talks about themselves. Why are you being nice to them? It's a supernatural thing. Jesus said, the world will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. That's what Jesus said, your love for one another. But too often, what the world experiences is that judgment that the church puts out there. That judgmental side. And when we're judgmental, we lack love. We lack love when we're judgmental. The real danger for a lot of Christians right now is lack of knowledge. Lack of relationship. They don't know the Lord. And they can't obey the Lord and they don't get to abide in the Lord. So they don't have a lot of love in their life because they don't know him and they can't be obedient to what he wants them to do. How does that happen? How do we get to the place where we have lack of knowledge and we have lack of obedience, which leads to lack of relationship? There's a Proverbs that Solomon wrote, Proverbs 24 it says, I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown and thorns, and the ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw it and considered it, and I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an unarmed man. Now Solomon here is talking about a work ethic, a good work ethic, right? You're going to have to work. You can't just be lazy and expect to have good fruit. If you're lazy. Things are going to go wrong. Your walls are going to be broken down. This is also true spiritually. You can't be lazy spiritually and expect to bear fruit and have things go right um, in your Christian life. Because if you sleep in on Sundays, you guys didn't, you're all here. Okay. No condemnation. If you sleep in on Sundays, if you don't read your Bible, if you don't spend time hanging around the people of the Lord, then the spiritual foundations of your life are going to start to crack. And the thorns and the nettles, the anxieties and worries of the world are going to start to creep in. And that fruit that was once there is going to be dried up if we become lazy spiritually. I talked to somebody this last week who's in this very same situation. Um, they used to be serving. Uh, they used to have a very powerful ministry, uh, used to affect hundreds and hundreds of lives for Jesus, treating other people the way that he would want to be treated. But then they took some time off took a step back, stopped abiding, stopped obeying. And thorns crept in and the walls fell down. And now they've become very cynical, very jaded, and they've lost their love for people because they took a step back. They became kind of lazy spiritually, if that makes sense. Uh, There is a Danish philosopher uh, by the name of Kierkegaard. And he tells a parable of a wild duck So there were a bunch of wild ducks and they were flying north in the springtime and they flew over this barnyard and one of the wild ducks decided to go down and check it out. So he comes down, he meets some of the tame ducks and he eats some of their corn, hangs out, says, you know what? The ferry is pretty good. This looks like a very safe place. And he hangs out for an hour. He hangs out for the day. He ends up staying for a week. And eventually, he just decides, you know what? The food here is pretty good, and it's a safe place. I think I'll just stay here. But then in the fall, when the flock of wild ducks was flying south, once he heard their cries, he got excited. He started to flap his wings, and he wanted to fly up and join them. But he could only get as high as the barn. And then he, he had gotten too fat, too soft, to be able to fly up with his comrades. And he fell back down thinking, you know what? It's okay. The food here is good. I've got, you know, friends around me. It's safe here. But one day, as they flew over, he started to flap his wings, but he didn't get off the ground. He had a gleam in his eye. He remembered the days before when he was, you know, when he had that passion to fly and be with the other ducks. And then one day they flew over. He didn't even pay any attention to them. He had grown indifferent because he had gotten comfortable in the world. Not only had he lost his ability to fly, but he had lost his desire to fly. And what a story of, you know, souls that can become content with the things of this world and neglect what we've been called to, what we were made for, to love God and to love others. We have a very good Father. And again, sometimes things happen in life that make us question. All we have to do is look at Jesus. Look to the cross, right? That's where you really need to look. We look at Jesus, but look to the cross, When we look at the cross, we see his love for us. And we think, you know what? These light and momentary afflictions are nothing compared to the weight of glory that he's prepared for you and I. But it's going to take discipline. You want to be a disciple? It's going to take discipline. And he's going to prepare you for the future. Not the one here that's going to keep us trapped, that's going to keep us on the ground, that's going to keep us soft. We have to stay fit spiritually. Don't get lazy. Don't step away. Stay in relationship, and you'll be able to serve Mightily, you'll be able to affect people for the Lord. Your walls will be firm, right? You'll be able to produce fruit for the Lord. That's what we're called for to produce fruit and so that your fruit will abide. Abide, obey, and know Him. And you'll be strong. You'll be able to stand firm in the storms of life and look at our Father and say, You know what? You're good. There was a season in life where it was hard for me to sing that. It was hard for me to sing, You're a good Father. There's that song, You're a good, good Father. And I stood there, and i couldn't I couldn't sing the song. and And then I was convicted, right? After a couple times. Like you know what? My circumstances in this world do not determine whether or not God is good. He is good regardless of what happens to me. because we were promised that things are going to go wrong here. We're going to have trials, but we have a future, and we have a hope, and it's in Jesus because of the cross. Amen.